I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is professor and author Ellen Winner, Ph.D., author of How Art Works, A Psychological Exploration. There is no end of talk and wondering about art and the arts. Uh, both philosophical and practical questions often emerge, which inquires like um, with inquiries like what makes something art or is talent a matter of nature or nurture. Uh, Ellen Winner, Ph.D., examines puzzles about the arts whenever or wherever their uh, provenance, as long as there is an empirical research using the methods of social science, interviews, experimentation, data collections, statistical analysis that can shed light on these questions. The examined research reveals how ordinary people think about art and why they think the way they do, an inquiry referred to as intuitive aesthetics. Uh, Dr. Weiner, Winner is professor of psychology at Boston College and senior research associate at Project Zero, Harvard Graduate School of Education, and has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's be clear. We're talking about art and the arts. So when we're talking about art, we're talking about all forms of art. Is that true? All the arts, yes. All the arts. Visual art, music. Theater, literature. I actually don't cover dance because there's very little research on it. Okay. Um, I think art, when you're talking about art painting, though that particular genre, people get sort of frightened uh, in terms of like art and whether they know enough about it or they have an understanding of it. Uh, Different than maybe the other forms of art. I don't know. I just have to throw that in. But um, so... Let's talk about art. What I mean is people are always talking about art and the impact it has on us both uh, emotionally, I guess, and physically. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about your, re- your, your research and what you found. Okay. Well, um, one of the interesting things um, I've found is that people know a lot more about art or they see a lot more about in art than they think they do. So you talked about people being frightened when they go into a museum and look at art because they don't know what they're supposed to think or feel. And I think that's particularly true when they're looking at abstract art because they really don't know how to judge it. And that's when we hear people say, huh, my kid could have done this. What's this doing in a museum? And if you look at children's art at age four or five, it's, ab- it's often very expressive and abstract and looks a lot like abstract expressionism. Um, people like uh, de Kooning, for instance, or Jackson Pollock. And that's why people say, my kid could have done that. We investigated whether people could actually tell the difference between works by children and works by great masters in the abstract expressionist tradition. And what we found over and over again is that even though people didn't think they were going to be able to tell the difference, they could. They recognized the works by the artists as more planned, more intentional, more thought out. And they talked more about the mental, the the mind behind the work. And we even found that children could do this. And it was a computer program. A deep learning algorithm was able to separate them. Um, the point of all this is to show that, oh, and one other thing I want to say is that what the, the, the thing that distinguishes the works by the great artists by the, from the children is perceived intentionality. If you perceive it as more intentional, less random, then you know it's by an artist. And we worked with a computer scientist who 
was able to replicate our results with a deep learning algorithm. The computer was able to make this distinction too, showing that there are perceptible differences. And so people see a lot more in art than they think they do. And I want to interrupt That's you for a minute because I think I, I so much agree with you. I, I've done that ex- sort of experiment myself. I think that when it's when if if it's a if, if it's a de Kooning or or a Jackson Pollock and you sit and you you experience the art, you really a lot of you it evokes a lot of emotion and a lot of feeling. If you try to just replicate that yourself, and I had a friend who tried to do that you don't get the same feeling. There's something missing or there's a lot missing. And, and, and yeah, and, and you can just feel it. It, it. And it doesn't evoke those same kinds of, of, of emotions. Um, so I, I think that's what you're talking about. So there is yes. art, yeah. One of the things I ask my students to do is to sit in front of a painting for one hour and just look at it and describe what they see and what they think and what they feel. And painting, if you, if you do that, rather than just walk right by a painting, which is what people usually do, you're amazed at how much richness there is. I, I think, haven't they done studies where people, observing um, people in museums, and they don't spend more than, if, if they spend five minutes. 17 that, that's seconds, including reading the labels. Yeah. So we have it's to. As if I you guess, walked how... through a library and you walked by each book and looked at the spine and said, "Okay, done that one. Now going to the next one. Done that one. Okay, I've been to the library." So we so need to. We really need to slow down when we look at art. Less is more. You know, we don't need to see all the paintings in a museum. Usually, that's impossible anyway. It's much better to pick a few pictures, sculptures, paintings, whatever, and immerse yourself in them. So what in your, let's talk about some of the topics you covered in your book. Uh, We're talking about what makes something art. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess the next question, maybe we've already answered this one, but can anything be art? Not really. I mean, and and, and so, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Actually, anything can be art. And that's the disturbing thing to people. Um, This is ever since... uh, uh, the end of the 19th century, the 20th century, when artists started doing very revolutionary things, um, the boundaries of what we considered art started to break down. So now when you walk into a, one of the things I talk about in my book is a pile of trash in a museum in a corner with all kinds of confetti and empty wine bottles lying around. And this was actually an exhibit in an Italian museum, and it was supposed to be about the decadence of life in Italy at the time. The cleaning staff didn't know that it was a work of art, and they picked it all up and threw it in the trash in the evening. And then the entire thing had to be reconstructed. So for them, it was not functioning as art. But for the viewers who go in to the museum and see the label, it is functioning as art. You may not think it's good art, but the distinction between good art and bad art is a different one from art versus non-art. And the Interesting thing is, once you perceive it as art, because it's labeled and it's in a museum, you start to look at it differently. You start to pay attention to its formal features, its lines, its colors, its textures, and you also start to think about the meaning. And that's a very different way of looking at something than when you don't think it's art. Then you just pay attention to what kind of object it is, like, oh, confetti, wine bottle, but you don't start to think about it and feel from it. So... Wait, so you're saying anything can function as art. You may not like it, but it can can function as art, and when it functions as art, you look at it differently. So what you're saying is that anything 
anything can be art if you define it as art? Is that what we're saying? That's is that what, what you're saying? Come. I mean, you walk into an art museum today and you might see rusted car parts. You might see um, uh, a trash heap. Uh, so you might say this is not what I think the art world should have become. But it, if, but it is art because this is our society has defined it as art. Our museums have defined it as art. And so uh, our, our responsibility when we go into an art museum like that is to try to think about how, how this could function as art. How can I look at it as art? How can it function aesthetically for me? And if you don't like it, that's fine. If you think that's not what the art world should be doing, that's fine. But try to learn about it. Try to understand why the art world is doing this. Because they're really trying to challenge our conceptions about what art is. And they're also not interested in beauty anymore. They're interested in provoking us. They want us to think. They want us to think about the meaning of what they're doing. And they're often, contemporary art is often a very strong comment on our culture and our politics. I think art is very political. I mean, I, I think, um, hasn't it always been political? I mean, art was a form of like today, we do have videos and we have film and and we market things through that. But we also traditionally through the centuries, didn't we do the same with art? Um, well, you know, art through the centuries was often depictions of great mythical scenes in history or religious themes. Um, so they were certainly about things that were important to people, particularly the religious themes. Um, but, uh, and I suppose, you know, you have Goya, who depicts the uh, firing squad, um, and certainly that's a political statement, and Guernica, Picasso's Guernica is a political statement about the horrors of war. Shakespeare's plays are often seen as disguised uh, political commentaries on some of the kings. Um, but I think art has gotten even more political today with contemporary art because it's really not until contemporary art that artists started saying they don't care about beauty. They only care about meaning. And so they're not striving to make things pretty. They want to provoke. Okay, so it has, it's, I guess you're saying art has taken on a different meaning. Um, I so think so, yes. I, yeah. Art has become increasingly provocative and political in the very contemporary art world. Give us some I was uh, thinking this is this is not the contemporary art world, but uh, had been at the Museum of Modern Art in uh, Montreal. And mm-hmm. I, I can't remember who the artist was, but it was something there was a lot of controversy at the time. Maybe I don't know if it was even with the 1700s or 1800s. Um, and they there was uh, the Paris Opera House was controversial in terms of whether to build it or not. And I think the king didn't want to build it, but the you know the other politicians did. And so the picture that they hired an artist for the to to paint the opening of the the, the theater, and they took the head of the king and put it on the body of of painted the head on you know on on someone else so that it de- so that the public thought that the king approved of the the uh, uh, the uh, the new building, <laughs> and I, that always stuck with me. And then when I was you know reading your book and and thinking, yeah, wow, you know that's and art and politics and stuff that all that always stood out. But and, and I'm sure that's not unique. I guess is what I'm saying too. Also, well, that's a great example, and maybe to yeah. some extent, all, all artists have been political on and off throughout the years. I just think that um, there was usually. Um, a consideration of beauty. That was considered important. And, 
Of course, when the Impressionists came along, the uh, critics thought that their paintings were hideous. And they rejected them because they were not beautiful. Now, of course, we consider them very beautiful, and they're one of our most treasured forms of art. So our standards of beauty do change, but the, re- the Impressionists were rejected for being hideous, um, hideous and sloppy. So, but I think um, we no longer talk about, oh, that's bad art because it's ugly. Often we like ugly art because it provokes us. You know, if you go to a Rauschenberg show, um, there's rusted metal in all kinds of weird shapes, painted in all kinds of drips and rags. It's not what you would consider beautiful. No, but it is. it makes you think about a lot of different kinds of things, and it exactly. does evoke all kinds of different you. emotions. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we've been talking about our, our – I, I know one of the things that um, I, I've heard you speak about, actually. I went online and listened to this, but um, does art help to raise – uh, our IQs, does it make it smarter? It, does it help us to, yeah. uh, does it? Or? I mean, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't. About that. Yes, and no, it doesn't. Yeah, I've done a lot of research on this. Um, everybody says arts make you smarter. Uh, music makes you better at math. Uh, infuse the arts in the schools, and you'll see the test scores will go up. That's a common claim, and it's common claim not only in the United States, but also in Europe, though somewhat less so. Um, we looked at all the studies purporting to show this, and what we found was a lot of correlational studies showing that kids who happen to take a lot of art classes also happen to be very strong students. These are high school studies. So kids who take lot, four, three or four art classes in high school have higher SATs than kids who don't. But it turns out kids who take three or four classes of anything who specialize in something have higher uh, SAT scores. And if you, that does not allow us to say that taking the arts caused their SAT scores to rise. For that, you have to do an experiment. You have to take people and give one half of them a lot of art and one half of them something else, maybe computer training. And you measure them before and after, and you see whether the art ones show an increase in some kind of academic measure, whether it's SAT scores for getting into college, grades, an IQ test, and over and over again, those studies show nothing. So those studies allow us to say we have no evidence yet that the arts cause IQ and academic performance to rise. Now, when, when we published this, people were furious at us, and they said, you are going to ruin quality arts education for the children in this country. We need to say that art raises academic performance. Otherwise, we'll lose the arts. And we came back and said, we don't want to say what's not true, and we want to change the conversation towards what the arts really do teach. The arts are not about verbal and mathematical skills. The arts are about big, broad habits of mind. Um, which we call studio habits of mind, learning to look really closely, learning to engage, learning to persist, learning to evaluate, which is a really important skill, stepping back and saying, is this working? Is it not? What should I do better? And learning to accept criticism because art classes have critique sessions almost all the time in high school classes. So we, um, we studied high, strong performing art classes, and we have seen eight different habits of mind being implicitly or explicitly taught. And these are the kind of things that studying the arts benefits, not 
performance on multiple choice verbal and math tests. And there's really no theory of why the arts should improve those test scores because their arts are teaching some very different kinds of things, but very, very valuable things that you can use in other courses in school and that you can use in life. So we're talking about the process of how we think, how we view the world, how we think about the world, how we feel about it. Uh, that's well, we're talking kind of really thing. about habits of mind, the habit of learning to look really closely. That's a very important skill, certainly important in biology class. It's important in chemistry class. It's important if you're going to be a writer, you want to observe. So observational skills, if you're going to be a doctor. Um, the ability to generate mental images, that's another one of our habits of mind that we saw being taught, where the art teacher will say things like, what would happen if you move this green place in your painting over to this part? And you have to generate that image in your mind and think about it. You get a lot of training in spatial reasoning in art class. That's another very important skill. So what does this say about the trend? And I, unfortunately, it seems to me, that's the first thing to go when there's a a budget cut, the the arts, that they take away the arts. arts The the arts go before sports. They're considered frills. And that's why uh, arts advocates had to say, uh, we need the arts because they raise test scores. And they didn't really care whether it was true or not. And we said, you know, that's a very dangerous thing to do because as soon as the superintendent discovers it's not true, he can say, well, then let's cut the arts. Let's keep the arts in for what they intrinsically do. And they build these habits of mind. And they also lower stress. There's some very interesting research from another lab, from Eleanor Brown's lab, showing that kids who are in a year-long Uh, Head Start program. These are very young, at-risk kids. And if their program is infused with the arts, their cortisol levels, which are salivary hormones, and that it it, uh, uh, is an indication of stress, their their cortisol levels go down by the end of the year. But the other uh, non-arts one did not. So art, the ability to make art relieves stress. It's a form of expression. It's a form of release. Um, and there are no, you can't fail art. I think uh, just on a personal level, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm using the word even therapeutic. I know if I'm stressed out or I've got a lot of stuff on my mind, the first thing, not the, I, I will try to, living in a city, go to an art museum and, and, you know, do exactly what you're saying. And I can feel my stress levels getting lower, my blood pressure lowering or whatever it is. It's very, yeah. it's, it's sort of like meditation in a way. It's different, obviously, but um, I, I just, I think that's absolutely It takes true. you out of yourself. Uh, yeah. um, one of my former students, Jennifer Drake, who's at Brooklyn College, has shown that if you take people and ask them to make a, if you induce a really sad mood in them, you get them to think about something really bad that happened, and then you ask them to draw something, and either draw something that's about what you were thinking about, or draw something completely neutral, like, you know, draw what your shoe looks like. What she finds is that stress levels go down for both Stress and mood, stress levels go down, mood goes up for both groups, but the group that benefits the most is the one that draws something completely different from what they were upset about, which brings me back to art takes you away from yourself. It is a form of escape, but it's a very healthy escape. It takes you out of your daily life. Takes you out of your daily life, exactly. So, uh, I mean, your research, I mean, you are uh, obviously a teacher, a professor, and a researcher, how do we kind of reverse this trend 
given the information and the, you know, the scientific knowledge that you have about what art does to us in such a positive way and for our children, how are, are, you, are you or your colleagues doing anything to reverse the trend of like getting rid of art courses, taking it out of the school system, um, mm-hmm. which, yeah. Yeah, well, we've written three books about our studio thinking habits of mind, and in it we argue that these are the real benefits of visual arts education. And um, this uh, framework of the habits of mind method has taken off and it's actually gone viral in this country and also in other parts of the world. I've gotten invited to China and Singapore. I have not been able to go to try to um, teach, train their teachers in how to use this method. So I... I can't say that we can have an we have an influence on school budgets yet, but I think that um, our teachers are getting fired up about this method, and they feel that it helps them advocate for the importance of what they do. So that's one thing. My, I also have um, students who are taking this research and taking it into other art domains. One student is studying the habits of mind that are taught in music, and another student, former student, who's Talia Goldstein, who's now at, um, at George Mason, is studying the habits of mind that people learn when they get involved in pretend play as children and then when they become involved in theater as teenagers. Um, and the habits of mind that the arts build, are, they're not the same for each art form. Um, there's differences. For instance, theater really builds your ability to understand other people's perspectives because you're constantly stepping into other people's shoes. Um, and visual arts don't particularly do that. Um, but I, what we are doing is trying to, art, trying to tell the world habits of mind are important. These are really big, broad habits of mind that we all need in life, and the arts are one of the best places to get them. Uh, music, painting, theater. I guess we focus more on the painting and the drawing, but uh, we're talking about all of it. Where uh, we only have a couple minutes left, so anything we want to leave the listeners with that, uh, I mean, obviously read the book, but um, to, I mean, there's there's a lot that we weren't able to cover. Uh, so what's, I'll what's say the one, message? One thing that I think is really interesting is that um, we are drawn to art that is tragic, sad, images of horrible things that we wouldn't want to look like look at it in real life. And this has been a puzzling to people. Why are we drawn to look at uh, pictures of firing squads or very, very sad music? And it turns out we're drawn to tragedy and grief in art because we know we're entering into virtual reality. It's not our reality. We don't have to mop up the mess. We don't have to act on it. We can just savor it and try to understand these negative feelings and learn from it. And that's one of the reasons people approach art with negative content. They find it very meaningful. So, Ellen, what website can we go to or websites? We've got one minute. Okay. Um, well, I have two websites. My own is ellenwinner.com. And the one for my new book, How Art Works, is just called winnerhowartworks.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of really good information. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 